Hey, Calvary, let's uh, take our Bibles now and turn to Second Peter. We're looking at, uh, this is probably going to be in two parts uh, this week and then the next time I'm in this after um, Resurrection Sunday, but we're looking at, in this passage of Scripture, remembering who is coming. Again, I have been mentioning that we Christians must add to what God has already given us. Uh, we are to proceed and to grow in what he has given us. And of course, I've already mentioned that by way of review, the seven qualities that we're to grow in, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. These are the qualities that help to form the image of Christ in our Christian character. And I've mentioned the questions last week. Why aren't all Christians fruitful? Why so many Christians continue to stumble? How can we live now to ensure our rich, our rich and rewarding entry into, the, into Christ's kingdom? God, of course, did not say that all Christians would be fruitful no matter what. He also did not say that we would never stumble once we believe and start to follow Christ. So the goal for these seven qualities found in verse number eight is that to be more useful, the more useful we will be if these qualities are increasing in our life, and then, of course, the more productive we will be, and that means that the qualities of Christian character are not to be added to our lives to ensure some quality of practical productivity, but so that our character may be like that of Jesus Christ. The productiveness and effectiveness that God wants in our lives is our increasing ability to think like Christ in the attributes that are communicable in our life and to act like Christ with those same qualities. Now, what is the verdict for those who, uh, if these qualities are not increasing in your daily growth and of, uh, in pursuing Christ-likeness? Well, then that means you're in disobedience. You're in disobedience to the goal. In verse number 9, it says two negative things. If you're not growing then you and you lack these qualities, it shows that you have bad eyesight, you're... Uh, blind and or short-sighted, and the idea is that these people see only what is in front of them and thus are blinded to the true reality. And then, of course, they lack, if they lack these qualities, they show that they have a bad memory, that they are, they forget where and from what Christ had rescued them. And, of course, if you see in the passage in verse number nine, they have forgotten what have they have forgotten? They've forgotten their purification. They've forgotten their cleansing as moral and spiritual cleansing that was done for a believer by the finished work of Christ. That's what they forgot. And, and why did they forget that? Well, because uh, they something was going on in their present reality that caused them to forget what had happened in the past, and these people were really returning back to their formal way of life. They were uh, living like the world. They were ignoring by their behavior that their sins have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and that they actually could say no to sin and put that sin to death and live on 
to serve Christ faithfully, successfully, not perfectly, but they failed to grow in their, their knowledge of Christ. That was the main failure. They failed to focus on God. They failed to focus on others and have stepped, of course, into walking in the darkness. And when you walk in the darkness and you're not walking in the light, that means you're not walking in the spirit. And therefore, when you're in that state, you are useless, unfruitful. And this one thing you definitely lack, you lack assurance that their eyes are focused on something. And it's usually themselves and their own desires and their own devices. They are actually shutting their eyes uh, from the truth and they have become careless to spiritual things, which actually hinders their spiritual growth. Now, Peter is, is assuming in this condition that these are believers that have uh, gotten off track. They have moved away. They have not been growing. That shouldn't, if that takes place their whole Christian life, and it shouldn't, then of course they uh, have to examine themselves. And so, again, Peter is actually writing uh, to remind the recipients of his letter that this condition is not a reality in their life yet, but can become one very quickly if they stop pursuing these virtues. If the influential also teachers, false teachers, have their way by misrepresenting and maligning the truth getting actually Christians, real Christians, to listen to them and to follow their ungodly ways, it will make that Christian more and more forgetful of the truth and will rob them of any assurance. And that's why he says in verse number 10, he exhorts them, make sure that you are called by Christ. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling you. Now remember, we see here that it's not us, uh, it's God calling us in the inner call of salvation where we accept and uh, are moved in our heart to believe the gospel. We're chosen by him. We're selected by God. And of course, not only are we to examine whether, make sure that we're called, but make sure that we're chosen here. And of course, it doesn't say you are choosing him. It says he is choosing you. And of course, we also are to make sure in verse number 10 that we are practicing these things. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So there's a promise here. And the promise is when you pursue these qualities, there's two things actually promises, if I can divide it up like that, is that the promise of assurance of salvation. Verse number 10, it says you will never stumble. Actually, as I mentioned last time, this is in the original, this is an emphatic, which really means it's translated, never at any time will you stumble. And it, it doesn't mean that you'll never sin. It means, as I said, more used like a military term. It means you will be able to keep up with the troops marching homeward without stumbling, without falling out of rank, without being left behind. See, it means staying close to the conquering Christ as you're growing in your knowledge of the Lord, as the text says. He is the one who leads us, leads those who are called by him and chosen by him 
in and through the battle of life onto victory and into the kingdom of God. And of course, the second promise would be that we would have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God in verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. That is a great encouragement to us as believers given by Peter through the Spirit of God to us so we can be encouraged too that this life is actually a preparation for the kingdom of God. But it is never implied that we earn a place in heaven because we keep these qualities. Heaven is all of grace. It's all because of God's mercy. It's all because of God's choosing you and his electing love. However, some who take the human side of salvation seriously by giving every effort to increase in these qualities will have a more glorious welcome into the eternal kingdom than others will. In fact, some will be saved only as one escapes the flames. Talking about the Bema Seed of Christ in 1 Corinthians where uh, Christians will be examined not for, they'll be judged not for sin, that's taken care of by Christ, but they'll be judged for their works. They'll be judged for how they live their life. They will be judged for um, all those things. Like it says in Corinthians 13, or excuse me, verse 3, verse uh, 12 through 15, if any man, verse number 15, any man's works is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as by fire. So the person here is a person that is saved so as by fire. He just makes it. He just makes it. And Peter is admonishing and exhorting believers here, don't live like that as a Christian. Live as a Christian where you're, you're living with gusto. You're living with all your energy and effort to, to pursue the things that are in the word of God. And in doing so, great benefits come to us. Great encouragement comes to us. And one of the greatest encouragements could be that we are assured of our salvation. We are assured of eternal life. We know it. We don't have any doubt about it because God has done a work in our heart. And we're different and we want to serve Christ. And those desires don't come from the flesh they don't come from the world. They don't come from Satan. They come from God himself. It was uh, Yogi Berra, who was a manager, a catcher, a coach of the, of the New York Yankees and other ball teams too, uh, who used to come, up, come out uh, with these quotable short sayings. He says he didn't mean to say it like this or he didn't mean to be quotable, but he ended, he ended up being quotable, and they became quite repeatable and well-known today. Sayings like, it's not over till it's over. And um, when you come to a why in the road, take it. Now, of course, it's funny, uh, because if you come into the why of the road, well, which way do I go? <laughs> See, Christians are actually left with that decision every single day of their life. They're, they come to a why in the road. Am I going to uh, take the high road and live 
according to the flesh, according to the world? Or am I going to take... Am I going to take the low road and live like that, or am I going to, am I going to take the high road, which is to walk in the Spirit? See, which, which decision am I going to make? Every day I have to make that decision as a believer. And the more we make a decision to stay on the path where we're walking in the Spirit, the more victory we have over our sin, over the world, over the deceptions of Satan. See, salvation comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, by Scripture alone, and in Christ alone. All who believe in Christ are given the gift of eternal life, guaranteed by God. However, the path taken from salvation to heaven will not be the same for every child of God. Some will take the low road, maybe more often than they should. The believer who takes the low road is one who lives life with no assurance. They lack visible additions to of these seven, seven qualities to their life. They can't see spiritually. They are blind. So during their journey in this world, they stumble along the rocks and they, they get bruised and they're a bleeding traveler. They cannot see afar off. They have spiritual myopia with, with their eyes half open, and they cannot see spiritual truth. So Christians who lack diligence are, or are idle in their faith have no right to assurance at all. Some, though, will take the high road. And that's, this is the, the motivation of Peter, to stay on that high road that the believer who takes the high road, they will possess in their practice evidence that they are diligently and visibly adding to their faith. Also that they will know that they're called and they're elected. They will dis- demonstrate that by a holy life. Individual behavior is proof or disproof of a true calling and election of God. Also, they will abound. They have, they'll have more than enough in this life. That's why they're, they'll always be thankful, and that's why their joy overflows, their thankfulness overflows, their love overflows, because God lavishes upon them more than they need. And that's why they can live even in a bad situation joyfully and, and with uh, gratitude in their heart and, and praising God and giving him worship because God is doing that as they are pursuing him and learning more about him. Also, they'll not be barren or unfruitful. They actually keep moving forward and keep producing fruit. They never fall because they can see, and they make a steady progress in the word of God. They have and look forward to have an abundant entrance in the kingdom of God. So the world becomes dim, and the kingdom of God becomes more of a desire of their heart. That's what God does in our heart. Christians who do not lack diligence and are not idle in their faith have every right to assurance. So then, the exhortation is, if you will have spiritual success in time, 
and divine congratulations in eternity, then take the high road so that you don't have to stumble and fall in your Christian life. The scriptures do promise to those who will apply diligence in developing seven vital qualities in their lives will have an effective and abundant Christian life and plenty of assurance. So Christians who are faithful in this way are welcomed into the glory of the of heaven in really a spectacular fashion. And of course, that one thing that we all want to hear someday, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so all that leads us up to what we're looking at this morning in verse number 12. Um, before I look there, you don't have to stay on the low road. The call to the high road is extended to all. And the question at this point is, where do I start? Well, verse number 5, it says, chapter 1, now for this reason, also applying all diligence. That's where you start, because he says it again in verse number 10, where he says, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So it starts with giving all diligence. So here is a call to a serious consideration which forbids you to waste time pursuing lesser things and being idle in your Christian journey. So as we see here, uh, your attitude towards growth is to bring into the relationship alongside of God every ounce of determination that you can possibly muster so that this is where we all start. Then we continue to practice being all the more diligent every single day of our life. So even if you fall off the wagon one day, get, get back on it and keep going. So why is diligence, diligence so important? It is because all the recipients of this epistle are reminded that they live in a world where there are many dangers. Here in this epistle is the danger of being led astray under the influence of teachers who do not believe in truth. In fact, they go as far as to believe that immorality would not incur divine judgment. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. So these are the dangers that are before us and in Peter, and so he is not only warning them, admonishing them, encouraging them, exhorting them, but now what he gets to right now is that the one way you and I keep diligent is that we have to be reminded so we don't forget. We have to be reminded of something we already know and we don't forget. Now you may think, well, that sounds redundant to me. Well, you know what? That's what learning is. Learning is a bunch of redundancies. 
We have to be reminded over and over and over again. So this next part of the text, there's, there's really two major points. The first point is the implications of remembering. And the second point, which I probably will not get to maybe part of it today, is the informants of remembering. Let me just look at the implications of remembering. In verse number 12 of 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Now here it is. In our text, we see a father's concern for the well-being of his spiritual children to remind them of what is truly important in their life so that after his death, he could, they could easily remember what he taught them and, of course, remembering that these things are going to be beneficial for their life in order to stay on that high road to keep living uh, and increasing in our God, in our lives and in godliness we must always have in our remembrance the certainty of Christ's return that is what he's ultimately getting at that's the ultimate remembrance that Christ is not only a knowledge we need to be growing in every day, but he's coming again. So living in light of the coming of the Lord. He says in verse number 12, not only that he reminds them, but he says, but you have been established in the truth, which is present with you. Now, Peter is actually assuming that his readers are on the high road. He doesn't want them to get off that road. Peter wants his readers to stay right there because he knew himself what it meant to fail the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, the word established is the same exact word that Jesus used of Peter when predicting his failure and his promised restoration. Now, if you just turn back real quick to Luke chapter 22, I just want you to Take a gander at this passage. Luke 22, verse 31 to 34. This is, of course, the situation where uh, Satan desires to sift Peter like wheat. And then the Lord says, I pray for you. And, of course, Peter then says, listen, you know, wherever you go, I'll go. I want to follow you. I don't want to drop out at all. And this is how it looks in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have have turned again, strengthen, there's that word, strengthen your brethren. So, of course, he said to him, Lord, uh, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he says, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you even know me. So, see, Peter failed. But the Lord wants him to know that, listen, I prayed for you. You're going to go through that time of failure. But when you're through it, 
you're going to be able to strengthen your brothers. And this is one way he's doing it. How is he strengthening his brothers? By the implication of remembering. And the first implication of remembering is remembering retains our increasing godliness. It, it, we have to be prodded onto godliness on a regular basis. And here, of course, the word strengthen means to set up something so it remains immovable. And that's what he wants. He wants his hearers to be immovable in what they already know, not go backwards, but go forward. And then a second implication of remembering is in verse 13 and 14, remembering rouses our passions. Now, Peter wanted his, reme- his readers to remain immovable in the truth. And that becomes something important for our text. The truth that is already available to his audience and the teaching that has already been given to them. And what does he mean by that? The teaching of the prophets and the apostles. In other words, he brings the Old and the New Testament together in this section of scripture because uh, they are both important. He mentions both of them. Now, why did Peter, before I go any further, why did Peter remind them? Why did Peter remind them not to be negligent in something they already knew and were firmly established in? Why? Well, there's two reasons for himself as a father to his spiritual children And that is this, the journey is short. The journey in life is short. Look at verse 13. I I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly tent, this earthly dwelling. Actually, it's the Greek word for tent. Now, remember, my life and your life is that of a traveler whose tent will be packed away one day and no longer needed. So... Live for this sure destination, and that sure destination is the kingdom of God. While we're doing there, while we're heading there, redeem the time, because the journey is short. So a second reason would be that death is sure. He says also in verse number 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir up Stir you up by way of reminder. That means that this this remembering is going to rouse their passions to go on and live in light of dying. For he says in verse number 14, knowing that the laying aside of this earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, that the reasons for his persistent reminding of the truth to his hearers is that the journey is short, so you got to get it, and death is sure, and you're heading there. How are you going to end this race? So repetition is a sound way to teach. The consistent repetition of a thing until it becomes part of us, that is the heart of all learning. Parents, How many times do you have to remind your children of something they already know? Not just once, maybe five or ten times a day. Maybe for years until they finally get it. Take out the garbage, okay? 
you come to the garbage and the garbage is full and they were supposed to take it out already. And of course, two times a week you tell them that. And then every month you tell them that. Of course, disobedience and rebellion are things you have to take care of very quickly. But you have to repeat things. I don't know of anybody. I don't have a photographic memory where people can read something and remember it and just the way it was said. I don't have that. Most people don't have that. So I have to be reminded of things that I forget. So there, there is a knowledge which is so crucial for our well-being, we can't afford to forget it. We can't afford to forget what we have been learning from the Word of God. If there is one area of knowledge we need to be reminded of, and reminded of again, and reminded of again, is our need for spiritual truths, our need for truth itself from the Word of God. The Apostle Peter, as he nears the end of his earthly life, writes in 2 Peter, for the purpose of reminding his reading readers of the need for spiritual truth, reminding his readers of what God has said in his word so that the word of God will stick to them. If you look over back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he again says it, and he says this, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. That's where he brings together the Old and the New Testament. So see, Christians need more than a low-tack adhesive as used in post-it notes. We need, as I mentioned the first message, super gorilla glue adhesive, so that what we are learning and what we will continue to learn from God's word will permanently stick in our minds. And so he is reminding them why. He is arousing their passion for truth. And believe me, the more you're in the word of God, the more you get passionate about truth. You really do. For our from our text, Peter knew something. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he knew something and that he was going to be martyred shortly and he was going to vacate his earthly tent. Where it says in verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent and it's temporary, my earthly dwelling, as also our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to him that the Lord made clear to him he was going to be martyred. So, But if you notice, Peter shows no signs of fear in this statement. And it's because he was establishing the truth. He wanted the same for his hearers, that death didn't have to be something that they feared, but it would be something correctly understood, an entranceway from this world into the presence of the Lord himself. See, the resurrection of Christ had slain the fear of death in him. Just like King David says in the same the famous Psalm 23, verse 4, death was a mere shadow to him, which couldn't harm any of God's children. 
where it says, even though I walk, what? Through the valley of the shadow of death. What will I do? I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, death was just like a blip on the radar screen for David and also for the Apostle Peter. He wanted the same for those who listened to and received the truth. There's another implication of remembering, and it's found in verse number 15. Remembering actually reinforces our readiness. We're ready, but it reinforces it. For it says here, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. In other words, listen, when you're either in the valley or the mountaintop, when you are alone, after your parents are gone, after your mentors are gone, you will be able to carry on because you will be established in the truth. And you'll be able to take the baton of what you learned and pass it on to others. See, people today don't need new truth but only to gain a clearer understanding of the eternal truth God has already revealed in the Word of God. So what is important for us is to be able to navigate the winding road of life on a strong foundation of objective reality while on our journey home to heaven. Why is that important? so that the real substance of the eternal truth of God sticks in our minds. That's why it's important. So Peter knew there, were, there will be some heavy-duty false teaching right around the corner. And as there is in our day today, teachers who mock at the idea of a powerful, heavenly Christ who could strengthen his children for present godly living, no matter how the botch the circumstances are. For it says in 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bring swift destruction upon themselves. So falsehoods are everywhere and dangerous and destructive. Falsehoods are distracting and blinding, and they deny essential truths. Falsehoods are controversial-ridden, and they don't lead to godly, godly living. Falsehoods rob assurance and strength to be effective, productive children of God in this world. So Peter did not want his disciples to be carried away by the precarious tide of false doctrine and those who propagate it. Why? So they don't lose their foundation. So they don't lose their footing in the truth and fall victim to that false teaching. As it says in 2 Peter 3.17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall 
from your own steadfastness. He did not want them to fall into their own, from their own steadfastness. And one thing that could cause them to fall is their own weakness of the flesh and also being introduced or letting false teaching into your thinking or into the realm of what you're learning. Unprincipled teachers deny Christ in their sensual ways. They don't have moral restraint. It says in 2 Peter 2.2, 2, many will follow their sensuality. Also, unprincipled people deny Christ in their teaching. You have to see both of them. Examine the life and examine what they're saying and what they're not saying. So they take lightly truth. So in turn, truth is slandered and twisted and misused. So there are... These are the things that he is bringing to the attention of his uh, hearers. The implications of remembering is that remembering retains our increasing uh, desire for godliness. Also, remembering rouses our passions, and also remembering reinforces our readiness against false teaching, against our own weakness that we have in our flesh, against remaining corruption. Also, there are reliable informants needed to undergird our memories, our thinking, things that inform us. And what are the informants? Well, let's go back to Second Peter and notice in verse 16 through 18, the first informants are the apostles themselves. The apostolic witness and experience inform us of what is true in the word of God. Also, the second thing, which I'll not get to today, is the prophetic word is also an informant. It informs us of how we are to live. Now, remember, he says in verse number 16, what I did not teach you to follow. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's saying to them, listen, the apostles are witnesses of and have experience of truth, of reality. And he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. These are myths, legends. Fables. Actually, it means uh, in other places it's in it's opposite to the word logos or word or declaration, and it's opposite to the word aletheia, which he's been using here, which means truth. He says you are established in the truth. Well, these other things are not established in any truth. They have no foundation. They have no authority. They have no importance in your life for producing godliness and stability in your forward movement in Christian growth. Now, these fables were far-fetched stories, usually of a religious nature about gods, the gods of the nations, Uh, steeped in pagan practices. You have Jewish fables. You have fables in the Talmud. You have fables in the Apocrypha. You have fable in the Apocrypha, remember, was written uh, after Malachi and before John the Baptist, that 400 years of silence, that's where that was written. 
Some determine that as scripture. We know that it's not scripture. Uh, when Malachi stopped speaking, there, no, God did not speak through a prophet at all for 400 years until he spoke to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist took the same message of Malachi and began to preach it then. And so Apocrypha is filled with all kinds of stories. Now, some of them doesn't mean that they're not historically true, but they're not scripture. They can't give us any benefit at all, and so they can be considered some kind of legend. I heard, I was reading a legend of two Hebrew brothers. Uh, A great story, uh, a beautiful Hebrew legend of these two brothers who lived side by side. One was single and one was married. And so his brother who was single got up one day and he said, you know what, I am single and I have all this stuff. I'm, I'm going to get some goods and bring it to my brother and lay it at his, uh, outside his home because he is, has a large family and he has a lot of needs. And so the brother who had a large family and a lot of needs says, you know what, my brother is single and he doesn't have anybody. I'm going to go bring some goods to his house and lay it at his door. And they both decide to do it on the same night. And, of course, they met and then they embraced. And, of course, uh, that's a great story. But it's only a story. It has no power. It has no authority. And and so he is saying to us, listen, it's... These people were clever in devising tales, devising myths. And this is not the only place you find uh, this particular admonition in Scripture against what not to follow. We, we find it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, where Paul says, I urge you upon my departure to Macedonia, remain, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and end endless genealogies. You're not to do that. And then he even says it again in 1 Timothy 4.7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Don't have anything to do with that because it's not profitable. Don't even waste your time on those things. Don't give your life to those things. And don't let them be, slip into the place where they're somehow equal to the authority that scriptures have. They are not. They never will be. On the last day, Paul even said to the people, and some will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Titus 1.14 not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. They turn away from it. It's the opposite of where he wants them to go. Also, false teachers scoff at the teaching of the prophets and apostles that Jesus would come again. That was one of the things that Peter's going to bring up in his epistle. They're mocking. Where is he? Where is his coming? Where's he been? All this time, all this history, he's not here yet. I don't see any signs. Everything looks the same to me. See, these false teachers are mocking that. False teachers could have have taught that the incarnation, the resurrection, the coming kingdom were just mere stories, not to be taken too seriously. Let's not take the word of God too seriously. Come on, that's, that's just a bunch of stories. You don't, I don't see any evidence of resurrection. 
today, they say. I don't see any evidence that there's a coming kingdom or there's life after this world. So they become mere stories. But these stories being repeated and being repeated and being repeated take root. And they become destructive, as Peter says, in the lives of people. It destroys their faith. It doesn't help their faith. See, false teachers were so locked into their present pleasures, the pleasant pleasures of this life, that they thought of God's future coming kingdom was just a blur to their greedy hearts and their corrupt desires. See, their minds were clouded to the second coming of Christ. To them, it seemed like a made-up story. So Peter calls their error in 2 Peter 2.1, who secretly introduce destructive heresies. They bring it in the back door. They bring it in from the side. They bring it in from places you wouldn't expect. It sounds good. It sounds right. And if you don't know the truth, you get hooked by it. So that's why he is reminding them that, listen, that is not where you to, you're to, you're, what you're to think about. You are to actually stay away from that stuff. In fact, 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you, what did we make known to you? The power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we receive the way, we receive the truth, we receive the life, because as an apostle, we saw and experienced the power of Jesus Christ. It is by this power the creation was called into existence. It's by this power that demons flee, diseases disappear, and ungodly people become are made pure. He's saying this, I, Peter, have experienced Jesus' awesome power and was given an unforgettable invitation into the mystery of Christ's person and got a preview of God's eschatological, eschatological return in glory. So he actually uses the word here uh, for coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus as the word parousia, which is the word used of the, the arrival of a visiting king or someone who has incredible majesty and authority. He was saying here, listen, I was shown a picture. and I was given a genuine, authentic picture of the coming, the second coming of Christ. And so what is the scripture referring to? Well, if you look... In verse number 16 through 18, he's saying here, listen, we were taught, we taught you from firsthand experience, not from fables, but from firsthand experience. We saw and heard and experienced the majestic glory of Jesus' kingly and kingly royalty and inherent glory. And it says at the end of verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance 
as this was made to him by the, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So the father's witness of the character and the work of his son. This was a real experience like no other. This was no dream or vision. It was a genuinely authentic experience. And he says, listen, I want you to know what we did. Now, to look at that, I want you to turn to quickly to Mark chapter Mark chapter 9, verse number 2. Mark chapter 9, verse number 2, because he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. On the Mount of Transfiguration, something took place. See, Jesus took his disciples to a secluded and a private place atop of a mountain that he could be alone with his inner circle of disciples. In Mark 9, verse 2, it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on the mountain by themselves. So once Jesus and his disciples reached the place on the mountain that Jesus was bringing them alone, something amazing happened. It says in verse number 2, he was transfigured before them. It's the, the Greek word metamorphosis. He was, he was changed into another form. He was transformed. Actually, it's used in a, a, the verb is used in a passive form, meaning that this was wrought by the Father. It was the glorification of the physical body of his humiliation, the transfiguration, the best way I heard it described was that God changed Jesus' form by allowing his pre-incarnate glory to shine through his human features as a foretaste of his coming exaltation, that someday we're going to see Christ in his full glory. And so he's teaching his disciples that, listen, all this I'm saying to you is in light of the coming of Christ, that the event of the transfiguration enabled the disciples to see more clearly, to see Jesus' power and glory, to see Jesus' true nature, which actually foreshadows the two comings of Christ, the first coming in his humiliation and death, and the second coming in his glory and his power. And then in verse number 3 of Mark chapter 9, not only his features, but also his clothing. It says his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. His garments are described as white and glistening, like nothing that could be, that could be pr produced on earth. Not, not, fab can't do it. Tide can't do it. OxyClean can't do it. Bleach can't do it. Jesus had a super heavenly whiteness that was never seen before. See, what the disciples actually saw was the glory of Christ. Glory is often connected to brilliance and brightness. This was such a significant event that all the Gospels, all the Gospel writers say something about it. Three of the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, present the narrative of the transfiguration. The Gospel of John does not present the narrative of the event, but sets forth in his gospel, the glory of Christ, where that verse comes in, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and what? And we saw his glory. He's, meant, he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Glory as only of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory assigned to each part of creation is not inherent glory, but reflected glory. We're baked dirt. That's all we are. Therefore, we have no glory that comes from inside of us. Whatever measure of glory we receive comes from outside of ourselves. And the reason why human beings have any dignity at all is because God has assigned dignity to us. It is not inherent in us. This glory, the glory of Jesus, is inherent glory. It is not like the reflected glory that is shown that was shown on Moses' face in the Old Testament in Exodus. The glory they saw, the glory they saw, the light they witnessed was not falling on him from above, but seemed to be coming from Christ himself. It was emanating from out of him. He was not reflecting light, he was producing light. See, God's glory is his own and proceeds from within. The very nature of his majestic deity was shown to them on that mountain, that the deity of Jesus Christ burst forth from within him, showing forth his glory in a very magnificent, and it says majestic way, that Christ is the brightness of of the glory of God, and that glory comes from within him, not from outside of him. And so it caused the disciples in the Gospel of Mark to say, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? This is more than a man. In fact, this light will shine in the New Jerusalem, which does not need the sun because Jesus illumines it where it says in the last couple chapters of Revelation, Revelation 21, verse 22, and I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus is the one who will always display before us the incredible glory of God. Now, getting back to Peter, there's, there's something that, I, that he is stressing to his, his hearers, and it's this. Whatever great, however great and historic and reliable our experience was there on the mountain, no matter how awesome and extraordinary the experience there on that mountain, there is something more sure and reliable. False religions are often inter intertwined with spurious, unverifiable visions and voices with Satan as the puppet master. Satan is the counterfeit of new prophetic visions and teachings which he repackages as the word of God. See, Peter wants to confirm to his readers something more sure than authentic experience. 
Peter is saying, if you don't believe my experience or our experience, then I got a more sure witness than that. And of course, that more sure witness is the scriptures themselves. And so next time, I'm going to relay that to you because the second informant for our faith is the prophetic word. And why is that? Because the scripture is sure, it is reliable. In verse number 19, it says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention. So pay attention to this, that this is what we have. As we await for Jesus' return to see his glory, the scriptures will inform and establish your faith and will cause you to be strong and make it every day growing in the Lord. Why are we to pay attention to the scriptures? Because they are reliable. Number two, because the scriptures are light, they are illuminating. Number three, because scriptures are truth, they are revealing. Number four, because scriptures originate from God, they are trustworthy. They are trustworthy. So if you ignore or neglect God's word, you become prey to your own laziness, to spiritual blindness, and to all kinds of false teaching and religious error. So as you and I await the coming of Christ, stick close to the word of God for all your truth, for all your life, for all your guidance, for all your holy living, because the scriptures will not let you forget that Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Have you been living on the low road? Well, it's time to take the human side of your salvation seriously and put strenuous effort into your spiritual development and stay on the high road as you keep your eyes focused on and your mind in the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much this morning for another opportunity to be in the word of God, to share it with your people in this way. And I pray, Lord, that the word of God would be used in our life in the same way it was used in the lives of the audiences of that Peter, of who received the letter of Second Peter, and today we receive it in the same way, Lord, that we want to be people who are people of the faith that are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but are, are established in the truth. And Lord, don't allow us our pride to get in the way to think that we know things when somebody reminds us of something we already know. Let us be always receiving the truth and examining everything through Scripture. And I pray as we do that, Lord, we would anticipate and always remember that you're coming again and you're coming in all your glory and power. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.